The purpose of the sheet you have in front of you is um, through this month as we go through the series in Hebrews, we thought it would be helpful for you to have a, a prompt to take sermon notes. On the back of the sheets there is uh, some application questions. Some of the small groups may pick up these application questions uh, for your studies midweek. And on the bottom of the back of the sheet there is something called QT, which is quiet time. So it will enable you to uh, track with us. Uh, through the month by reading those selective scriptures on a daily basis. We'd really encourage you to do that. Uh, we, we pray that that will be helpful. We're trialling this process and we're, at the end of the thing we'd like to get some feedback if it's uh, worth continuing. Uh, we Hopefully it is helpful. So that's what uh, that, that sheet of paper is for. Right, we're ready. Thanks John. As stated this morning, we are, we are starting uh, this mini-series. And it's predominantly going to concentrate on the last two chapters of the, the book of Hebrews, chapters uh, 12 and 13. We think as we sort of end this year, we've, we've been through the, the book of Acts, we've discussed what it means to be gospel-centered in our living as a church. And really these last couple of chapters in Hebrews are a wonderful exhortation and encouragement for us to press on into maturity. And we hope that as we, we, we dive into some of these quite practical applications, that it will be an encouragement to your soul to, to press on. You see, this uh, book of Hebrews is, is more like a sermon than a letter. If you read through it, it doesn't have the, the formal structure of a letter of one of perhaps Paul's letters or, or one of those types of letters. It's more sermonic in its flavour. It, it is believed, and, and most modern scholars believe, that this particular sermon was a one-off delivery. It's not a fragment of sermons here, there, or everywhere. It's, it's a one-off delivery. Now, I would think probably if you read through this and what have you, it might take about an hour and a quarter. So that, that's the type of uh, document this is. It's a, it's a written sermon. And it's a real encouragement to press on to maturity. Rather than fall back in your Christian walk by being either disobedient or through a lack of faith. You see, in the first part of, of this book, we, we have uh, the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ highlighted. If you really want to look at, at Hebrews, it's, it's about Christ, his sufficiency and his supremacy. The preacher, or he uses structured arguments, arguments from a lesser to greater type argument right throughout this sermon. And he develops a pretty robust Christology that's seen nowhere else in the New Testament. For example, I'll explain this for you. In chapter 1, you, you have pretty much the, the, the brushstroke that Christ is supreme to the angels. He is superior to the angels. 
In chapter 3, Christ is portrayed as superior to Moses. Through chapters 4 through 10, we see Christ's atonement and his priestly office is um, not only a fulfillment of the Mosaic law, but is greater in every way. Because his priestly office is after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of the Levitical priests of the Old Testament. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And in the middle of the, this, this doctrine that he's developing at the start of the sermon, he really comes to the purpose of Hebrews. So if you, turn your, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to, to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Because I think this is the heart of the issue of what uh, is being expounded and proclaimed through this letter. Let's read from verse 11. About this we have much to say. I'm reading from the English Standard Version if you're, you're doing it electronically. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying of hands, the resurrection of dead, and eternal judgment. See, this writer who, who is unknown, we, we don't know who it is. It could be Paul, it could be Apollos, it could be Barnabas. You can read screeds of material on this, but the indication is that the, the, the text does not tell us who the writer is. But he has this heart, this deep pastoral heart to see his people move from this position of immaturity to a position of maturity, to press on into maturity. The letter's written somewhere around 60 to 70 AD. And I think uh, the reason you can deduct that from here, sure, it doesn't say this is the time, but there's many references to the temple. And there's no references to the fact that the temple has been destroyed. So I would think that you could safely uh, say that this letter is prior to AD 70. And it seems like he's addressing sort of second-generation Christians. Church has been going for, for uh, you know, close on 30 to 40 years. And he has this deep heart to say, press on to maturity. Here is Christ. Here is the superior one, the supreme one. Focus on him and, and press on to maturity. You need to grow in your faith. You need to be obedient and not disobedient. And he provides some severe warnings as well throughout 
this book. So if you want a, a, an overview of the book, you can. this helps provide it. You have God's final revelation in the Son. The first four verses of Hebrews are just phenomenal. We'll just read them just to give you the, the context. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's how God revealed himself, was through the prophets. That's what we have in the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power and making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than they. What a wonderful, wonderful um, revelation of who Christ is. He is the creator. He is the heir of all things. He is God. The exact imprint of God and notice this he upholds the universe by the word of his power everything we see and, and, and experience today is because Christ holds it together this writer knew Christ and he knew his supremacy And then, as I said, you see the superior son over the angels, over Moses in his priestly office and his saving work. And the encouragement and exhortation is to press on into maturity. And then the sermon takes a bit of a change in, in chapter 10. I just want to move you to that. Please move to chapter 10, verse 19. So whenever, whenever you study God's word, you've got to look for key things as you read through his word. I encourage you through this month, in your quiet times, in your devotional times, read through the book of Hebrews. Try and read through it in one sitting. It was delivered in, in a, a one-setting situation. Read through it. Look for key things that, that are important. And one of the key things that are important We'll discover here as we read. Verse 19. It's a summary. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As I've read that, what is, the, what is the key phrase that has been repeated? What's the key phrase? Let us. Repeated three times. 
Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider. This is a repeated phrase. Whenever you read God's word, look for repeated phrases because they're important. As we go through the the balance of these chapters from 10 through 13, you will see this, what they call a subjunctive, come up often. And it's a a really interesting grammatical technique that the, the, the preacher is using because it's all about commanding and exhorting. It's all about encouraging and and saying, let's press on. This is a a key feature of this letter. As he draws the people together and saying, okay, this is Christ, this is the superior one, the supremacy of Christ. Now because of that, because we have confidence that Christ's blood has atoned for us, because we have a new and living way open to us, because our great high priest is interceding for us and is a mediator on our behalf, let us respond. Let us hold fast. Let us draw near. Let us consider. Draw near with a true heart, with full assurance. That's what happens when you dwell on Christ. When you have a life that dwells on the glories of what he has done on your behalf, as you dwell on him, it develops in you an assurance that is beyond understanding. An absolute assurance that that the Lord has got it. He is your high priest. He is mediating for you. He stands or sits before the throne of God daily because we know that Satan, the accuser, comes and accuses before God your and my deeds every day. Who sits there and mediates for us? Christ. Why can he sit there and mediate for us? Because he's gone the way of the cross. So this is the type of of exhortation that occurs in this book. Back on Father's Day, we, we, we looked at Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. We looked at what it means to consider and to, to run a race of endurance. So Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, I'll just give you a brief summary here of, of that. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us... Also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sin and such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, this, as we discussed it back on Father's Day, running the race of endurance requires a couple of actions. The first major action is to lay aside the weight of sin. He's using an athletic metaphor. We talked about the fact that when Athletes of this time would would race. They would cast off their robes. They didn't want to be hindered by anything. So they could run. He uses that here. And he says, the same thing happens with your sin. 
You need to learn to throw aside your sin, the power of the Spirit. See, you can't run well if you're being hindered. You would all agree with that, right? I can't run well because I'm hindered by this. Some, some other you may can't run well. Russell Dixon can't run well. He's got a dodgy knee, I think. It's because Ivana keeps kicking him. But anyway, the, the issue here and the, and the picture language used is you can't run well unless you, want to, you need to throw aside these things. You need to deal with these things. We need to be, as Christians, dealing with sin. Yes, we are justified. Yes, we, our sins aren't held against us, but you and I walk a daily life. We are tempted. Our desires are out of kilter. Our hearts are far from God at times. We need to be, have an attitude of, and heart of repentance and confession daily because he is faithful and just to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. So to run a race of endurance, you need to lay aside those sins. Through constant confession and repentance before God's marvelous throne of grace. Here it also instructs us to look to others. Clearly says, look to others. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he refers right back to the hall of faith in chapter 11. Look through chapter 11. You see, men of faith, Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and then at the end, he's just, he's exhausted himself. He says, he talks about Rahab. And what shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, Samuel, and the prophets. So part of our running the race is dealing with the sin, but looking to the faith and example of others and how others run the race. But greater than that, the lesser to greater argument, but greater than that, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter. Think about those words. The author and perfecter of your faith. He is a source of faith, and he is the model of faith. It says our eyes are to be fixed on him. To fix your eyes on something is to direct your attention, to gaze at that object. When you're in love, it's easy, right? You spot that beautiful woman across the room. Where is she? Oh, there she's there. And you, you fix your eyes. I'm not looking at you, Emma. I'm looking at your mother. You fix your eyes upon... <laughs> you fix your eyes and you don't want to be distracted and you, you, your attention is focused. Now, this fixing of eyes upon Jesus is slightly different to that because you're fixing your eyes on him in a trusting manner. A total 
trusting manner. Why? Because he is the source and he is the model of faith. Source and model of faith. So that's the encouragement. That's how you run the race of endurance. You run the race by dealing with sin, by looking at the examples of others who who have walked the faith before you. That's why discipleship and mentoring are key. And I want to throw this challenge out to you. You know, we've, we've, we've talked a lot about discipleship. It is a key part of the Christian life. Who are you discipling? Are you in a relationship with another Christian for mutual encouragement so you can dive into the depths of your walk with the Lord? This week I want you to go and I want you to pray and I want you to get yourself an action list and I'm going to say, put two or three names on there and commit to speak to those people and start a disciple relationship. If you don't know what that looks like, please come and see us. Please see John. Please see me. Please, If Shubalu is here, you can see him, but you can't at the moment. Skype him. Please see your small group leaders. Those in the comm, any of the leadership here, and ask, how do I do this? There's some wonderful material around for discipleship. Some wonderful material. All right, we're going to read further on because this is part of the process. So we've got the encouragement to run the race with endurance. And then he picks it up. And he adds another aspect to what it looks like to run this race of endurance. So read with me from uh, verse 4. We'll go down to verse 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises or and he punishes every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Or probably a better rendering, endure your suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He moves on and says, okay, you are to run the race with endurance. But part of running the race with endurance 
is going to be your shaping. It's going to be divine discipline. He subtly moves from an athletic metaphor of running to an athletic metaphor of boxing. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted. Both these words were used when it came to the athletic contest of boxing. These words are only used here in the New Testament in these phrases. It has a sense, have you ever fought back? As, as, you've, as you're struggling with these things in your life, have you ever resisted to the point of actually giving your blood? Have you ever opposed it so vehemently that it's cost you some blood? That's the question he, he raises in a rhetorical fashion. And then he follows up and he says, well, I think you've forgotten. He says that. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Question mark. Notice the question marks in your Bible study. Questions are very good. They're normally rhetorical and, and they normally have an answer in the next few verses. So as you study God's word, look for those keys. So in this, he's saying, are you so deep in your trial and, and so deep in your suffering that you've developed amnesia? You've forgotten the fact that you're a son? And that's what he gets to. And, then, and he provides some, some scriptures from actually Proverbs chapter 3. This is a direct quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 which talks about the way the Lord disciplines us. Now, I want to talk to you about discipline here. This is not in a punitive sense. So what do I mean by that? Discipline can be two things, punitive or non-punitive. Punitive is when there is some form of judgment based with a discipline. Right? Let, let's think about that. Uh, for instance, say if you fell behind on your bills, on your Visa card, MasterCard statement. Say you could not afford to pay your bill. There would be some punitive results because of that. What would the punitive results be? The bank would put it to a debt collector. The debt collector would go legal and they would say, you need to pay. So there's a a result of the cause, if you like. So the result is that there is a punishment. And you need to pay not just that, you need to pay a little bit more and a little bit more because of lost interest and this is your term of your contract. Okay, that's, a, that's what a, uh, a judgment based on a particular discipline would be. Non-punitive, which is the context of this, is when discipline combines words and things like training, instruction, guidance, reproof, correction, chastisement, punishment. You know, it's the art of providing guidance for responsible living. This is what God's discipline is about for the Christian. It's about guiding you to, to, to being trained 
to press on to maturity, which is only obtained through a discipline and correction process. And this is what he explains through these verses. He quotes a verse from Proverbs, and then in verse 7 he says you need to endure. This is the second time this has been used in this, this passage. The process of endurance, you run the race to endurance, and discipline you need to endure. There's something around perseverance. Why? And this is the beauty, because God's treating you as a son. This is the whole argument, he said. If you weren't a son, and if you were illegitimate, you wouldn't have God's discipline across your life. But rejoice in the fact that you are a son, and that he is shaping you. Now, we all know those of us here who are parents. When we, we, we have our children, we discipline our children. Or I hope you discipline your children. You put boundaries on their behavior. You teach what's right and wrong. Hopefully you're gospel-centered in your parenting, so you're teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ and the, and the grace he offers. Now, as parents, we, we do discipline. We are we do that. It may be in a flawed situation. Some of us here may have been severely hurt by unjust discipline, by harsh fathers, harsh mothers. But God's discipline is not like that. Why? Because God loves you. You are his son and daughter. That's why God disciplines. He wants your very best. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is good. He wants to shape you. And he wants to shape you because it's good for you to be shaped. You might find that incredibly painful at the time. But you'll look back and you'll say, I'm glad I've been shaped. I'm glad I've been shaped because I'm a heir of the king of the universe. And he's shaping me to share in his holiness. Look at verse 10. He disciplines us for a short time. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Now this, uh, this is amazing because this word holiness here is another one of those times within the New Testament this word is the only time it is used. And the word denotes that the holiness that is talked about here is the essential attribute of God's character. That's why he disciplines you, so you can be shaped and become more like Christ. So you can become more like him. And when that happens, look at the result, verse 11. It will yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
So the purpose of discipline is to yield this fruit. The purpose of discipline is to yield the fruit of righteousness. For all those who have been trained by it. Being trained by it consists of ongoing results, enduring results that last for a long time. And this is where the context of this passage talks about the non-punitive nature of discipline. Because God has and loves you and he wants to draw you to the fact that he is developing fruit in your life. He's developing fruit in your life. Let me read the final little paragraph here. So because this is what God is doing in your life, because he is loves you so deeply, he's concerned about shaping you into his image. Lift up your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees, verse 12, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So he works back into this whole athletic metaphor. Who's run a marathon race here? Wow, I didn't expect that from Rob. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. But I'm sure I've been told that when people run long-distance endurance races that, yes, this picture language of drooping head and strengthening your weak knees is quite relevant. All right? Because you're in a long race of endurance. Your lungs are bursting and the fatigue is there. And the Christian life is like that, folks. At times it's like that. We get weighed down by sin. We get weighed down by circumstances. But look to Jesus. Lift your drooping heads. Strengthen your knees and make straight paths for your feet. Turn back to me to Proverbs chapter 4. It's a quote from Proverbs 4, this very first line. It's very insightful. You can see what he's thinking as he as he uh, speaks these words to these Christians who he wants to mature in the faith. He grabs Proverbs 4, and I'll just read briefly for you from verse 20. Men here, if you want to give your kids some wisdom, use the first eight chapters of Proverbs. It will keep you going for a lifetime. You young folks who are with young families with little ones, use these Verses here. Time-bound wisdom. Chapter 4, verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words and incline your ear to my sayings. Another repeated phrase right through Proverbs 4. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So when the writer here in Hebrews is talking about keeping a straight path, it's not just keeping a straight path one foot in front of the other. It has this, this sense of look directly. 
Keep your eyes on the goal. And what does Hebrews 12 talk about the goal? Who is the goal? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Gaze straight before him. Ponder the path of your feet. Then your ways will be sure. Back to Hebrews. See, the result of having a straight path, the result of looking to Jesus, the result of dealing with your sin, the result of looking to others in faith, the result of understanding divine discipline, that's something that's going to correct and train you, will mean you'll run well. It will mean you'll run well. You will strive for peace for everyone. One of the fruit of the, fruit of the Spirit. Part of the fruit of the Spirit. And for wholeness. So you see, the race we're called to run is nothing less than living out the Christian life through faith and endurance amidst great hostility. You know what? The race can be run successfully because Jesus has run before us. Hebrews brings that through this book all the time. Because Jesus has done it before us, we can run successfully. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with us, sympathizes with our weakness. He wants to wrestle in our hearts to to sort out and discipline us and train us and correct us. We must review suffering in these terms. The future reward of being with Jesus serves as a present incentive to endure and remain faithful no matter what the cost. Look unto Jesus. See, the glory to come with our suffering will be finally overcome by Christ's victory. See, the fulfillment of God's promises aren't dependent upon our circumstance. God will fulfill his promises no matter what. Whatever our external circumstances are, whatever we may experience, this will not hinder God's work in your life. He's working your life for his glory so you can take on his holiness. Discipline will only last a short time and then God's people will receive what is promised. This is the encouragement here. This is how to run the race. The fruit of the race is peace, peaceful fruit and righteousness. We are to strive for peace and holiness. We are consistently to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'd like to invite the music team up and we'll sing our last song.